We've been um, actually, I've been getting a lot of questions lately from people. It's, it's been kind of an interesting thing. It kind of rises and falls, you know. But um, people are asking for questions. People are asking for some some time to talk, and uh, it's always fascinating to me because the questions that I was asking you know, 25 years ago when I was starting this this journey myself, I look back on those questions. I look at the questions that that are being asked now. And they're all basically the same questions. But more than that, they're all basically one question. There's one question that we want to know. And it takes place and and takes all these different forms. But it's leading back to the same main concern. You know, I've had people come and be asking about theology, theology questions, or asking about scripture, asking about theodicy questions. You know, how can there be evil in the world if God is all good and and God is all powerful? And I've had uh, a mother come and ask me about whether she is doing all she needs to do for her children and wondering if she's equal to the task and wondering, you know, if it's acceptable, the, you know, the way that she's trying to divvy up her time between siblings and the things that she's doing. Uh, you know, there's been people asking me even about salvation of loved ones. You know, are, are they going to be okay because they're doing this or that? And, and what about this? You know, when you take all the questions that we have about our faith, the questions that we have about a religion, and you boil them down, they really come to one question. If you had one question that you could ask God and actually get answered, what would it be? I'm almost afraid to let you actually respond to that because you'll probably blow my thesis on this. You know? But I think you know, if you really boil it down, the question that you want answered more than anything is, are you keeping a light on for me? Because that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? What do we want to know? We want to know there's a seat at the table. We want to know that we're accepted. We want to know that right here as we sit in all of our imperfection and all of the things that we know is going on in our lives, that we're still worthy, that we're still loved, lovable in some way that we can't possibly see. And we want to know that there's going to be a place for us. That's really it, isn't it? Call it salvation. Call it redemption. Call it atonement. Call it whatever you want. You know? But what it comes right down to is we want to know if there's a light on for us. And that's perfect. Because that's what human beings are all about. It's about connection. That's why we're here. We want to know if we're connected. We want to know if we're connectable. You know? It's all about this question of God's love. Is it really what it's cracked up to be? We want to know this. How are we going to find out? How are we going to know for sure if we're really loved the way that Jesus says that we're loved? If we're going to be loved the way the New Testament says? You could read 1 John 4 if you want to. That's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It just lays it out as plain as it can possibly be. That's the one that says God is love, right? And perfect love casts out all fear. And if we're walking around in any kind of fear, we're not perfected in love because fear is fear of punishment and there is no punishment in love and so on and so forth. I mean, it's about as succinct, about as clear, and about as rational as you can get. So you can read that. And you can read the rest of the New Testament. And then you'll get a little bit more fuzzy and confused. And then you're going to read the Old Testament and then it all goes out the window, right? So we can read the Scriptures, but we're still going to have questions. We're going to read the scriptures, and even though we may grant mental consent, mental assent to these beliefs, 
as they're stated? When it comes right down to it, are we really convinced? When it comes right down to it, are we we living our lives as if that is really true? With the sense of blessed assurance, with the sense of at least contentment, and a sense of overarching serenity that becomes our characteristic, our characteristic way of dealing with the stresses of life, dealing with the unknowns and the vagaries of life, the changes in life. How are we going to get to that conviction? That's really the question. you know. And when you think about it, Jesus gives us a different way. Not just a cognitive way, not just a legal way of answering that question for ourselves, whether God is with us, whether God is on our side. But it's an experiential way. He gives us the actual way of living life. And he calls it kingdom. And we've gone over that many times. This idea of kingdom, this way of living life that brings us face to face with God's love. Face to face with truth that will set us free. And he says even something more about this way. He says he is the way and the truth and the life. This way that he is living, this way is that, he, that he is relating, and it's the only way to his Father. The only way that we can understand what it means to be loved the way that we're loved is to live in a certain way that gives us an experience of that love. Because until it's experienced, we don't really know. Until it's experienced, it's just theoretical. It's just electrical signals in our brains. And that's not enough. And Jesus knows that's not enough. So he gives us this this way. But we have a problem here as modern Westerners with this way. Because it's difficult for us to translate through the scriptures and understand what's going on. Jesus has his moment of absolute clarity in trying to bring this way across to us right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of Matthew 6, when he gives us the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, understood correctly, is this crystallized form of this way, broken down into steps that we can actually take to experience the love that Jesus is talking about. But our problem is is that we don't really understand the prayer anymore. It's been a while since I've talked about this prayer. I realize that. It's good to come back to it every once in a while and to reimagine, I suppose, the Lord's Prayer from an Aramaic point of view. Because as soon as we do that, as soon as we bring it back into its original Aramaic language and setting, everything changes about this prayer. We just don't quite understand what it's all about. You know, it's... Uh, I found this little list of the way that kids understand the Lord's Prayer. And I thought it would be a really good kind of break for us. But also, illustrating a point, when kids are taught the prayer at a very early age, you know, by rote, they hear all sorts of things. It's kind of like when we hear songs and you misunderstand the song lyrics, you know. (laughs) There's a song by um, Elton John, Tiny Dancer. And someone said, it was, hold me closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> hold me closer, Tony Danza. I thought that was pretty good. You know? Or we built this town on sausage and rolls. You know? We do that. We hear what we think we've heard, and then it just sort of sticks with us. Well, there was a three-year-old boy who was reciting the Lord's Prayer, and he was heard to say, our father who does art in heaven, Harold is his name. 
A Sunday school teacher asked her class, what was Jesus' mother's name? And one child answered, Mary. And then the teacher asked, who knows what Jesus' father's name was? And a little kid said, Verge. He says, confused. Verge, where did you get that? And the kid says, well, you know, they're always talking about Virgin Mary. Virgin Mary. Virgin Mary. There's a small kid in Unionstown, Ohio, and he was praying, give us this day our jelly bread. So that's wishful thinking. When my twin daughters were young, I taught them to say the Lord's Prayer before going to bed. And as I listened outside their door, I could hear them say, give us this steak and daily bread and forgive us our mattresses. A six-year-old was overheard reciting the Lord's Prayer at a church service. Forgive us our trash passes as we forgive those who passed trash against us. And then along that same theme, there was a four-year-old girl who said, forgive us our trash baskets, as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. At Grand Junction, Colorado, when, a, when the, this little boy was younger, he believed that the line was, lead a snot into temptation. And he thought he was praying for his little sister to get into trouble. <laughs> or the little New York boy who petitioned God to lead us not into Penn Station. I guess there's something about Penn Station you should avoid. And deliver us from eagles. And then finally, a four-year-old said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us some email. You know, we laugh about these things because it, it's so cute and it's so endearing and, you know, it's so obviously wrong. But the thing is, we're doing the same thing. We have been reciting this prayer for 2,000 years. It has become so familiar to us that we don't even think about it anymore. We say these words, but it's just like saying Harold is his name because we are moving right across and right over some really, really deep truths that this prayer can help us with. The thing about this, the, the Lord's Prayer is that it's spoken in a very alien language, alien to us. Ancient Aramaic is a far cry from modern English, in the way it's constructed, and especially in the mindset and the worldview that undergirds it, the, the worldview from which it came, changes everything. And so what I wanted to do is, is recite for you the, the Lord's Prayer as close as I can come. This will be really Syriac Aramaic, um, the, the dialect rather than the Galilean Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken, which we have no idea what it really was. People have tried to reconstruct it, but we don't have any, any written form. And uh, in my poor accent, we'll, we'll see how well I can do. But, Avund Vashmaya, Nit Kadashmach, Tete Melchuta, Neve Sevyanach, Ekana Dvashmaya Afbara. Havlan Lachma de Sunkana Nyomana Vashvoklan Hoben Akana Dafkanan Shwakan Lachayaven Vila Tedlan Nis Yuna Ila Patsam Membisha Mitol de Luchai Melchuta Vahaila Vatush Bokta La Alam Almin Amen I don't know about you but that language is gorgeous, even as poorly as I am pronouncing it. There's something about the roundness of it, the openness of the vowels, and, and, and even the guttural sounds. It, it's just, I, I try to imagine being there, listening to this language. You know, it, it's just, it, it's a musical language. It's a language that has layers upon layers of meaning in a way that we don't understand with a 
a language of our own that has about, at some estimates, 800,000 words in it. You know, a word for every occasion. Whereas you have an ancient language like Aramaic where the vocabulary is small and all the words have to do double, triple, and quadruple duty, all these layers of meaning, you know. And even when you take what I just said in Aramaic, and you translate it directly into English, it changes a little bit. Take a look. If you have your your inserts, take a look and you can see if we take this translation directly from what I just said, it comes out a little different. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Just as it is in heaven, so also upon the earth. Give us the bread of our need this day. And forgive us our debts, just as we should forgive our debtors. And do not let us enter into trial. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so you can see a few differences here. But the differences, even though they seem slight, are significant. You know, give us this day our daily bread is the way that we normally say it out of the King James. And we recite this, this prayer every Sunday at the end of our services. I, I read an article as I was prepping for this that was critical of people reciting the Lord's Prayer because obviously Jesus said that only the hypocrites recite prayers in public spaces. You know, ah, there we go again. You know, yes, obviously this prayer was meant to be lived, but at the same time, it can be recited. It can be recited as a reminder, which is what we're doing. In other words, we don't have to look at this so dualistically. It's not either or, it's both and. But if we can start to layer over in our own consciousnesses what Jesus is really after when he prays this prayer, when we recite it, even in our best King James English, hopefully that's going to resonate. That's going to be in the background. And it's going to be a reinforcement of really what Jesus is after here. Give us the bread of our need this day. There was one that, that uh, one possible translation was, our bread which is from the earth, give us day by day. Which is really sweet in terms of a, an echoing of the first line. Our Father who is in heaven, our bread which is from the earth, give it to us day by day. But still there's this idea of things enclosed within the space of each day as we move forward. Forgive us our debts, as we should forgive our debtors. What happened to sins? What happened to trespasses? Or trash passes? (laughs) Well, the beautiful thing about that is, in Aramaic, the word for debts and the word for sins or trespasses is the same word. In that culture, it made no difference. Anything that took a relationship out of balance... As soon as you have two friends and one loans the other money, now you have a creditor, creditor and a debtor. You know, as soon as someone perpetrates something against, now you have a victim and a perpetrator. There's an imbalance that's caused in the relationship, and the idea is to bring that back into parity, bring it back into equilibrium, pay the debts. You know, forgive the sin. This is the idea here. So whether it's Matthew talking about debts or whether it's Luke talking about trespasses or sins, it's the same idea, the same exact concept in the Hebrew mind. And this last line, do not let us enter into trial. So much better than lead us not, isn't it? Because now God gets out of the business of taking us into the evil place. Because that's not what God does. This more accurately reflects the King James translators chose another way and deliver us from evil. So 
we see these little differences, but this is just looking at everything from a top level. And then when you look at Luke, Luke's version is even shorter. Look at that. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. What's going on there? Why is that so different than than Matthew's version? There's a lot of, of speculation about why there's such difference. The thing that makes the most sense to me is that one thing we don't understand about is Jewish poetry. Jewish poetry doesn't have meter and it doesn't rhyme. What it does is repeat concepts in different ways to create the mental ringing that we do in our language through rhyme. And so the repeated concepts are how you can tell that you're in Jewish poetry. And if you look at those lines that have been shortened in Luke's prayer, they are, I think, examples of Jewish poetry where the same thing is being said twice. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As we're going to talk about here in a second, kingdom and will are exactly the same concept, the idea of God. And so, is Luke just eliminating the redundancies? Maybe, possibly, for a Greek audience? Possibly. Another idea is is that Luke, or Jesus as he evolved, went on, that Matthew captures the prayer from an earlier part of his ministry, and Luke captures it from a later part of his ministry. And basically, he had shortened it and created a shorthand version because people understood the prayer better at that point, had heard it, were more familiar with it. And so he didn't have to give the whole nine-yard version. He could give a shorter version. Are either of these true? I don't know. But what I do know is, because of that nature of the repeating of concepts, Luke's prayer contains everything that Matthew's prayer does. Maybe just not quite so richly. But it's so interesting the way these things work. I put brackets around the last line. Did you notice that? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because that line is not in the oldest and what scholars now consider the most reliable manuscripts that we have. It's in later manuscripts dating to the 12th century And it made it into the King James Bible, and so that was carried through into the Protestant branch of Christianity, but it doesn't occur in the Catholic Bibles or the Catholic tradition. I remember when uh, Frank and I went to uh, the Desert House of Prayer, and uh, it's a Catholic um, retreat center out in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And uh, the first time that we were there and we had Mass, and during the Mass you recite the Lord's Prayer, and I was just waiting to see if he would do it, and he did. (laughs) (laughs) lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil everyone stops and Frank says for thine is and he was all alone (laughs) they don't say that part you know it's just a difference in tradition and yet it's a beautiful line it probably scholars think came from 1 Chronicles 29.11 I put that down there just for your edification yours Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So the idea is that it was probably part of the Eastern Church's doxology. It was part of their liturgy that they recited so often that it crept into the copies of the the Bible as they were being copied in that tradition. But it didn't happen in the Western tradition and certainly didn't happen in the earlier desert manuscripts that were found much later. Which is interesting stuff about the prayer. But this is all top-level understanding. 
What happens when we start to dig underneath the skin, dig deeper into these layers of meaning that the Aramaic has for us? What do we start to learn at that point? What starts to happen to the prayer? Let's take a look. First of all, let's take them, just take them line by line. There are five lines in the prayer, actually, that I want to take a look at and see if we can glean a way of living that Jesus is trying to get across to us. So first of all, our Father in heaven is literally. Uh, at the top, if you're looking at your inserts, I gave you a transliteration of the Lord's Prayer. And if you look, that first line is four words. Avun Devashmaya Nitkara Shmach. Okay? Each one of those words is interesting because in our language, we create sentences with helper words, right? Articles and prepositions and conjunctions and all this stuff. In Aramaic, you don't do that. You just don't add new words. You add to the words prefixes and suffixes that create the, all the meaning and connect all the grammar and syntax. So we have ab is father. Avun here means something different because the addition of that suffix is taking it and expanding the concept. Ab is father. It could be ancestor. It could be parent. It's understood as male. But when you put un on the end of that, it's going into the po- largest possible area, a cosmic, and and it moves beyond gender. So it's not really so much father as parent at that point. And yet we can still say father. It's still a good translation. But to understand that it's not about gender, you know, not masculine, but this parent of all, this cosmic, if you will, creator or birther of everything that is, is the idea of avun. Shemaya is heaven. And Shemaya itself is a combination of two words, a word and a suffix. Shem is the word for name. But not just name to the Hebrew mind. The name, the Shem, was really the essence of something. What really made it tick? It was the, even the reputation. It, it was the characteristic or the character of something. And not only that, the Shem referred to the outer countenance or appearance of something that revealed that inner essence. And when you add Aya on the end of it, it's extending it without limit. And so the Shemaya is the essence of something extended to all of the cosmos, all of the universe, all of creation. And that's why they called that use Shemaya to mean heaven. But also, it's also the face of God that is revealing his inner nature. And so God in heaven, this cosmic parent, is literally being revealed. The essence or the nature of this cosmic parent is being revealed by all of creation, everything that we can see. With our farthest telescopes, everything is revealing something about the inner nature of God. Neat Kadash. Kadash means to be holy, or it means holy itself. Holy is a word that we don't really understand anymore because what it really means is to dedicate, to set aside, to set apart, to reserve, dedicate for an absolutely specific use. That's what holy really means. So to make holy God's Shem and Shmach is just another form of Shem, that name, that essence, that character. To set aside, to make holy that name is to literally clear a space within ourselves. 
for that name to take residence, to take root. When you think about your lives and you think about how noisy our lives are, how we carry around these little cell phones that are always calling us, always demanding attention, and all of the forms of electronic media that are constantly, constantly just reinforcing that stream of distraction, that stream of noise, all the details that we have to multitask. What this first line is saying is that we have a cosmic parent who can be known by everything around us. That essence is being revealed. But unless we clear a space for it, unless we get rid of the distractions, we are not going to be able to see what is right in front of our eyes. And so to clear a space is what this first line is all about. The need to clear a space to be able to see the God who is right in front of us. Here we have the idea of your kingdom come and your will be done. And then is as in heaven, so on earth. Kingdom, we talked about so many times. Kingdom is the quality of life that we can have when we are living with a cleared space. It's what happens when we clear the space. It's what happens when we live our life with the kind of presence that sees beyond just the surface of things and realizes the connection that lies beneath, the connection of everything to everything, how the glue that holds us all together is this love, is this basic acceptance. And God's will, Tsebiana, is a second part of that. The will is not the will we think of, but the will is the actual pleasure, the delight, the deepest purpose of God? That's it. God's deepest purpose, the thing that gives him the most pleasure, is to live in this connected way. That's it. Unity is God's deepest purpose and deepest pleasure and delight and desire. Just as it is in heaven, in that place of complete connection, that is revealing the inner essence of God, now let's bring it to earth. In other words, let's merge heaven and earth. The Jews thought of themselves as living between heaven and earth, and our job as human beings was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, to merge the two inside ourselves, to be able to see that there is this connection. But more than that, to match our desire to God's desire, match our purpose, our delight to God's delight. At the point that you take no greater pleasure that being absolutely present, absolutely connected, to feel no distance, no daylight between you and the other, that's when you have matched your desire to God's desire. That's when you become a kingdom resident. Think about two sons that both are going into their father's business. But one of them does it because he has to do it, or thinks he has to do it. You know, because it's the next thing to do, because it is the family business, because it's the only way that he knows that he's going to be guaranteed an income. It's for whatever reasons he's being obedient to his father and his father's wishes. He thinks maybe he'll hurt his father's feelings if he doesn't go into the family business. There's all these things that are pressuring him, and he, but he does it. And then his brother, who just loves the family business. I don't know. What is it? Mortuary? <laughs> a furniture shop, who knows what it is, but he loves it, and he pops out of bed like a piece of toast to get to it every single morning. Two brothers, 
doing exactly the same work, but one is living in kingdom and the other is not. One has graduated from mere obedience to actually enjoying and taking pleasure in the work as much as his father did who started the business and the other does not. That's what we're talking about. If we think that we can just obey our way into kingdom, we're missing the whole point of what's going on here. Matching our desire to God's desire to find out that we take no greater pleasure than being connected either, that we take no greater pleasure than being in unity. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This connection, just as it is in heaven, we're going to bring it to earth, starting with ourselves from the inside out, from the bottom up, not the top down, is the way all this works. Give us the bread of our need this day. Tavalan lachma desunkanan yomana. A little bit different take on, on the way that it's translated from the King James. But the idea of bread, lachma, is that it's not just bread, physical bread that we eat. Spiritually speaking, and the way the Jews understood lachma was that it was every type of provision that you could get from God. Yes, it was physical. It had to do with physical provision. But it also had to do with emotional and relational provision. It also had to do with spiritual provision. Everything that flows from God was symbolized by lachma. This is why Jesus calls himself the bread of life, right? Because he's talking about everything that you need as a human being, everything that can be supplied to you as a human being is here. It's here with me. You can see it. And so the lachma is everything that we need, but we're only going to get it day by day. We're only going to get it within these 24-hour bites of time. We can't store it up, right? We can't remove the risk from life, which is what we want to do. We want to get all the lachma, we want to store it up in our bins, and we want to know that we can dole it out whenever we need it when time gets tough. And you know what? Life doesn't work that way. You cannot live life risk-free if you're going to live in kingdom Because to live in kingdom is to be open, to be vulnerable, to be connected. And that puts you in a precarious spot. This will be the experience of life, lived well. Because at the same time that you're feeling vulnerable, you're also feeling connected, which is the greatest pleasure because you're connected to God's desire, right? The flip side is, you're not going to know what's coming next. Because your provision, your lachma comes this day. It is the bread of our need this day. And so you immerse in the moment. You clear a space. You match God's desire. And you immerse in now. You immerse in this moment. You immerse in this day. You don't look for tomorrow to be your salvation. It's here or it's nowhere. But this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. To live like this, like those birds of the air who are provided for by God. Think of all the imagery that Jesus uses. It's coming right back to this point. So incredibly important for us to understand. Forgive us our debts, just as we forgive our debtors. So this idea that there's some kind of connection between the two. Forgiving our debts and forgiving our debtors. Right at the end of this prayer, Jesus says something that really is kind of striking, stirring, disconcerting, 
contradictory it seems. He says, if you forgive your brother, then your father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, neither will your father in heaven forgive you. All right, what just happened to unconditional love? What just happened to unconditional forgiveness? Did that just go out the window? Now I'm like a trained seal again. I'm going to get my fish only when I perform. What is going on here? Jesus is trying to get across a basic law of the universe. There is only one entity in heaven or on earth who can release you from your victimhood. And do you know who that is? It's yourself. From God's point of view, we're already forgiven. We're as forgiven as we want to be. Because from God's point of view, the relationship is not broken. God is that perfect love. God is that perfect connection. We're the ones who are moving in and out of focus. When we feel that we have been victimized, we can remain victimized for as long as we want to. And many of us do for decades, right? We will not know that we have been forgiven. We will not know that we are connected as long as we hold on to the victimization, the bitterness, the resentment, everything that we feel because we've been hurt. It's only in the releasing of that angst that we feel against someone else that we suddenly realize that we were forgiven already, all along. And this is the sense of this. Forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. When we forgive our debtors is when we realize that our debts have been forgiven too and always have been. This release from the past, and this is not easily said and it's not easily done. For those of you who have gone through all the fourth step workshops in the 12-step program, you understand that that's just the beginning to this process of releasing. Those of you who have gone to therapists and, and done all sorts of different types of treatment, maybe some of you have been traumatized. Getting released from the past is a big deal. But until or unless that happens, we are going to be blocked from the full understanding of what this love that God has for us really is and how deep it goes. So releasing from the past is huge. And then finally... Do not let us enter into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or, do not let us enter into the trial. The word in, in Aramaic for trial and temptation is exactly the same word. They had a folk understanding of what happened at the end of their lives as going into a courtroom-type trial. That was what was going to happen. And Hasatan, the devil, was a faithful servant of God, not in opposition to God, but working for God, one of God's employees, basically, if you would not look at it that way. But his function was as the prosecuting attorney. He was the one at this trial who was going to bring all of the negative information, negative information to bear as there was going to be some weighing of these, these judgments. And during your lifetime, Hasatan, Satan, functioned to make sure that you knew that your choices were real, that your free will was real, because he was presenting the other alternative, the alternative to God, the alternative to love, the alternative to functional relationship. And so this is an interesting way of, of for the Hebrew mind of looking at this. But the thing to understand is what's really going on here. Do not bring us to the test. Test. There's a test involved. 
But the test is like fishing line is test, right? I was just reading that you want to have a, what was it, a four to six pound test for trout? Eight pound test for bass? Is any fisherman, is this right? 30 pound test for tuna? <laughs> you need the right test line. How do you know what a line test out is? Well, they stretch it until it breaks. And whatever poundage it breaks at, I guess you ratchet back a little bit and that's your test. You know, it's the same thing with us. In other words, we're asking God, don't let us be broken by the test. Huh? Don't let us be broken by the trial, by the temptation. In other words, help us to remain undiverted in our purpose. Even as we start so well over time, don't let us get pulled off into places that will divert us, that will destroy everything that we've been building up. And deliver us from evil. Evil, bisha, we've said this many times in here before, literally means unripe, immature, unready, unable to perform as a fully functioning human being should perform. Deliver us from that immaturity. Deliver us from that inability to be able to do what a kingdom resident is supposed to do. What a fulfilled human being is supposed to do. So if we take those five steps and we just do a paraphrase, it's going to read something like this. Our creator and parent of all, all creation carries the signs of your love, desire, and purpose by which you are known. We clear a special place for you, for your love, desire, and purpose in our hearts and lives. May your desire and purpose become as real in our hearts and lives as they are in yours. Help us to see that everything we need for this day, this moment, is contained in this day and this moment and nowhere else. And release us from all that binds us and keeps us from your deepest purpose, your kingdom. And remind us that it is in our releasing of the pain and resentment we hold toward others that we find our own release in you. And then do not let us be diverted from our true purpose and deliver us from the inability to become complete and one with you and each other. And then for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yes, it's a doxology. Maybe it's a holdover from the Eastern Rite. But look how we can understand that. What is purpose? What is kingdom but purpose? It is God's true purpose. What is power? But God's power, as we experience it, will be the preservation of our own lives. And what is the glory but the awe? And so to finish off this prayer, from you comes all purpose, preservation, and awe from age to age. Amen? I confirm it. I trust it. I bet my life on it. Now the prayer starts to come alive. This idea here, the most important question that we can ask, whether we are loved, how are we going to know it? How are we going to know if we are really loved the way Jesus says we are right now, as we are, and forever? How are you going to answer that? Only in living out this prayer as Jesus is laying it to us. He says it's the only way to the Father to clear that space to match God's desire and purpose, to immerse in the now, immerse in this moment, not pull away, but lean in, to release from the past 
And maybe that's a lifelong process, but continue to keep releasing ourselves to become more and more free, at least at that 51% mark, where we're characterized by the freedom, the ability to be here right now, making choices in this moment, and then to remain undiverted to this purpose for the rest of our lives. This is how Jesus lives. This is how he lived in front of the people that he was teaching. It's how he lives now. It's his way. It's the only way to the Father, to truth that liberates. And to a Jew, spiritual liberation here and now is salvation itself. See how it all ties together. Jesus' way is really Jesus' Shem. That Shem, that name, that essence, character, that reputation, that deep part of himself. To pray in Jesus' name as we do, is not just attack in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, but literally to pray, to live our lives in the way, in the character, in the reputation of Jesus. And then everything starts to change. Because knowing love, as we so desperately want to, is the same as knowing God. It's the only way to it. And knowing God is experiencing the love that is our Father in heaven. And so the only question left is, when do you want to start? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the men and women who have spent their lives devoted to archaeology, and scriptural interpretation, and textual criticism, everything that it takes to give us the gift of the first understanding of what you tried to teach us 2,000 years ago. Thank you for those countless lives spent in devotion to a moment like this, where we can stand on the shoulders of these people and see a little bit farther into your heart What would we do without people so dedicated to knowing you so they can pass that knowledge on to us? Thank you for giving us these words. Thank you for spending so much time trying to make us understand. Help us to do just that. But more importantly, help us to take the steps. Help us to see how this connects in each choice we make, each relationship we have. And if we still don't understand, help us to reach out and ask for help of each other to become vulnerable in that moment, humble in that moment, that we need a helping hand. Help us to do that. We need each other. It's through each other that we're going to find you, Lord. So we want to completely connect in our community and with each other. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. And thank you for your prayer. And thank you for the way and the truth and the life that will finally bring us to the sense and the understanding of your love. This love that we can only accomplish at all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody, let's stand.